Let me begin by reading verse 1 of the book of Numbers. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying... And we'll pause there because that little verse gives us plenty to remind us of where we are in the story. We've been teaching verse by verse from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and now we've made it here. And those first three words are the very reason we're studying it this way. Because the Lord spoke. God has spoken through His Word. And it's called the book of Numbers because in this book we're going to see two different censuses of the people. They're going to count the children of Israel twice. Hence the book of Numbers. The Hebrew title for the book of Numbers is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness, which is also a really good title. That comes from verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. And in fact, this book is going to cover the years from Mount Sinai to their entrance into the promised land, which is 40 years. And this is the book that will tell us why it was 40 years. We see in verse 1 that this is the 14th month since the Exodus. You see, he says it's the first day of the second month in the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt. We spent a significant amount of time when we began Exodus talking about the date of the Exodus. We hold to what's called the early date, which would be circa 1440 BC. And so since that date, it's been 14 months. And also, it's been one month since the tabernacle was finished, because the tabernacle was finished after they had left for a year. So in the time between the completion of the tabernacle, which was the end of Exodus, and now, which is the second month of the second year, there was one month. And in that period of time, you had the book of Leviticus. And you remember, the book of Leviticus was not a very narrative-heavy book. It was very legal, because that's what it was. It was their law system. There were two little stories, one of which was the ordination of the priests and the death of the sons of Aaron, and then the man that blasphemed the Lord and who was then executed, the first one to be uh, killed that way according to the law. So there was plenty of time for this to happen. And it's been a month since they finished the tabernacle. And I imagine they're starting to get their feet under them and God is going to give them a little bit more. And this book is going to cover all the time until they get ready to go in to the promised land. And that really is the structure of the Torah. So we've been talking about this, that there is a structure to the first five books of the Bible. Torah is the Hebrew name. It means law. Pentateuch is the other word we use. It means five books, like Pentagon, Penta. And there's a structure to this. This is what's called a discrete unit of Scripture in that it is meant to be read together. Much like the book of the Twelve, the Twelve Minor Prophets are meant to be read together. Luke and Acts are a unit to be read together. So you see this, that there is a chiastic structure, and you're probably tired of hearing about that, but we're going to do it one more time, in the, in the Pentateuch. Genesis describes the falling away, the departure from the promised land. Now, there's a cosmic sense where people are driven out of the Garden of Eden, but then that story is played out through the children of Israel in that they leave the promised land and go to Egypt. The book of Exodus describes them going through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, where the covenant was forged. The center is Leviticus, where they learn how are we to dwell in the midst of this God who has delivered us. Numbers is the journey away from Mount Sinai to the promised land. And then Deuteronomy is the last words of Moses as they prepare to enter that promised land. So this is the journey back. At the beginning, as you saw, we're still at Mount Sinai. We got there in Exodus, been there all through Leviticus, and we're going to be here till the end of chapter 10 in the book of Numbers. So this is really a lot of time condensed, or a lot of information condensed into a very short amount of time. We, of course, believe that this book was written by Moses, not least reason because Jesus called this the book of Moses, and I believe what Jesus had to say. Uh, Although there is no reason to say that Moses could not have 
brought together sources that had been written down by other people. For example, if Moses had scribes that were writing these things down or, or something like that, if there were primary sources he used in Genesis and brought them together, that's, that's not outside the bounds of inspiration or inerrancy. You do get outside the bounds of inspiration when you say that all of it was written thousands of years later and said to be made up by Moses. Now, we know certain things, like the death of Moses had to have been added later, probably by Joshua. And um, this obviously was put together at some point, but that's, that's all part of the process of inscripturation. But it was Moses' book. These are ancient documents, and they are historic in their contents. We don't believe they were just made up later. Every attempt you see in order to make this look like it was just thrown together later, it's really... It's a straw man, and I don't even mean that as a false argument. I mean that like you punch it and it just falls over because it looks really good, but it's not. There's something called the documentary hypothesis. This is real exciting stuff now. But the documentary hypothesis, which believes that there were four different sources over, over a thousand years that came together and were compiled uh, after the exile, after they had come back, perhaps by Ezra. That idea has no historical evidence. It comes from a guy named Wellhausen, who was a German in the 1800s, and made it up because he said, my theory is that all religions evolve from simple to complicated. Therefore, we have a very complicated religion in the book of Leviticus. It had to have come later. There is no textual evidence. There is no archaeological evidence. It was just his idea. And yet most people hold to it. We don't. We're Christians. We believe our Bibles and we have good reasons to do so. So that's the, the broader structure. Now we get to the actual structure of numbers itself. Now, this is not a chiastic structure. This is what we're going to call a geographical structure. I think the best way to outline the book of numbers is by the location of the people. In chapters 1 through 10, they're at Mount Sinai. And God is giving them the last of the laws, which we're going to get to in just a short time here. Chapters 11 through 12 are them traveling from Sinai to the boundaries of the promised land. And uh, th those journeys are never good times for the children of Israel, as we will see. Then in chapters 13 through 20, they are at Kadesh, which is right on the edge of the promised land. But they're not going in. And they're going to be at Kadesh for most of the book. Then in chapter 21, they're going to travel to the plains of Moab, where they will be for chapters 22 through 36. And that is also where the book of Deuteronomy is going to take place before Joshua, when, of course, the famous story where they took the Ark of the Covenant into the Jordan River and it parted. That's the entrance that we're looking forward to. So we're calling this a geographical structure, and there's a lot of different things within this book. Also, something important for you to note structurally, if you're taking notes, is that there are two censuses. They count people twice in the book of Numbers. The first one is in chapter 1. This is the first generation. This is the generation that came out of Egypt. Then in chapter 26, they're going to count the people again. This is the generation that was alive after the wilderness wanderings. So this is going to be the people that actually survived the 40 years. So it's an important point in the book, the before and after the second census. And if we wanted to give this book a theme, although it is a very broad book, it's not quite as tightly structured as Leviticus is. And if you believe, as I do, that this book was written, the stories were written down over 40 years, then it, yeah, it would make sense that it would feel like, okay, we're going here now. And oh, this part's real short, but this part's real long. And some people see a lot of insidious evil things in that. I don't, and I don't think we should. But if there is a theme, we'll call it that the faithfulness of God to his covenant in the midst of the rebellion of his people. The faithfulness of God to his covenant amid the rebellion of his people. Now, something we need to remember as Christians, faithfulness is not always positive when it's aimed your way. Because God can be faithful to his covenant in providing the blessings of the covenant, but he is equally faithful when he provides the curses of the covenant. So when they rebel and he causes the ground to open up and swallow Korah, that's God's faithfulness. He says, I'm going to keep my promise, even as the people rebel. And of course, there is a great encouragement to be had for those of us that are going to obey the Lord. 
This book has a ton of familiar stories. This is where you get uh, the spies that go into the land and say we shouldn't go in. This is where you get the bronze serpent. This is where you have Balaam and Balak, where the donkey speaks to the false prophet. And this is where we read about Moses striking the rock. Much of this will be familiar to you. But there are also, especially in the first 10 chapters, and then at the end, some important legal and ceremonial matters, which is what we're going to focus on tonight. We're going to see the first census of the people, the organization of the camp, and the instructions for the Levites regarding the transportation of the tabernacle. So really what this is going to do, this is going to set the scene for you. It's going to show you all of these travels and journeys when it says they moved from here to here and then they camped here. All of that is going to be according to what we read in these first four chapters. And as far as our own application from this section, we're going to see that God counts every person, every group, every leader, and every ministry. Now, they're going to literally count the people, but it's going to be a good reminder that everyone counts when it comes to God. So let's now get into the rest of this. The Lord spoke to Moses. We know why we have a book, because God spoke. He spoke it to who? Moses, the prophet. Where did he speak it? In the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, which they had just built at the end of Exodus, and we learned all about in Leviticus. When? On the first day of the second month in the second year, after they'd come out of the land of Egypt, calling back to the Exodus, saying, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head. From twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company, and there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men who shall assist you. We're going to have one chieftain from each clan here. From Reuben, Elizur, the son of Shedeur. From Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai. From Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab. Boaz will be a descendant of Nashon. From Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon. From the sons of Joseph. From Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud. And from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazor. From Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideoni. From Dan, Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. From Asher, Pagiel, the son of Akran. From Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Duel. From Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan. These were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. Little note, we're not going to hear much about these men after this, except I already mentioned Nashon will be the forefather of Boaz, who of course is the forefather of David. And also Elishama, who is the chieftain of Ephraim, is the grandfather of Joshua, which would make him the father of Nun, because Joshua was the son of Nun. Moses and Aaron, verse 17, took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together, who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names from twenty years old and upward, head by head, as the Lord commanded Moses. So he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from twenty years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Reuben, were 46,500. Of the people of Simeon, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, those of them who were listed according to the number of names, head by head, every male from twenty years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Simeon, were 59,300. Simeon is the clan that will decline in size the most by the end of the book of Numbers. Of the people of Gad, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of the names from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Gad were 45,650. That's the only number that is not rounded up to the nearest hundred. Does not say why. Of the people of Judah, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able go to, to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Judah were 74,600, the largest tribe. Of the people of Issachar, their generations by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Issachar were 54,400. 
of the people of Zebulun, their generations, by their names, by the clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Zebulun were 57,400. Of the people of Joseph, namely of the people of Ephraim, remember the tribe of Joseph was divided into two half-tribes when Jacob blessed his children at the end of Genesis. Ephraim, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Ephraim were forty thousand five hundred. Of the people of Manasseh, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Manasseh were thirty-two thousand two hundred. That's the other son of Joseph, remember, who was older, but Jacob had prophesied that the younger son of Joseph, Ephraim, would be the greater, and this is borne out here. Of the people of Benjamin, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Benjamin were 35,400. Of the people of Dan, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war. Those listed of the tribe of Dan were 62,700, another very large tribe. And we're going to see they're going to be given some authority probably for that reason later on. Of the people of Asher, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Asher were 41,500. And of the people of Naphtali, their generations, by their clans, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. These are those who were listed, whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their, far, by their father's houses, from 20 years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. My father asked me on the phone today, so are you going to read all of it? I said, yes, I am. (laughs) Maybe not the second time around, but I do think it's important that we hear some of this out loud so that we don't just skim it and miss it. Y'all are troopers for hanging in there. Thank you. So this is the first census of the people. The second one will come in chapter 26. We read in Exodus 30 the laws for how the census was to be carried out. Moses was told, When you take the census of the people of Israel, each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord. There shall be no plague among them. And everyone who is numbered shall give half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. 20 years old and upward. So, We saw this happen in Exodus 38, where they built the tabernacle with the contributions of the people from the census, but it did not list the census. Here we have the list of the census, but it does not list them giving their contribution. So it could be that the contribution was taken first and the census was taken later after they had finished the tabernacle, or perhaps they did it all twice. It does not say, but it's just interesting to note that. In any case, what you can see is that this is very much a military census. This is like registering for the selective service. They're trying to figure out how many soldiers they have. And in fact, this whole section tonight is going to have a very military feel to it. We end up with 603,550 fighting men. Does not say if they cut it off at a certain age. So we're going to assume they didn't. But if that is the case, 603,550, it implies that there were more than 2 million total Israelites, including the women, including the children, and so on. Now, this very large number has has been confusing for people studying this book for a long time. And there are certain questions that have been asked about this. Some of them are better than others. Here's one that's not so great. People will say, the desert could never have supported 603,550 men plus their families apart from some miracle. Yeah, it's called manna. It's It's called your shoes didn't wear out. It's called I provided water from the rock. So we'll put that to the side. But here's a question that is more textual. If they had this many soldiers, which as far as we can tell from archaeology, this would have been a massive army. Why were the people so afraid to go into the promised land? And why were they unable to finish driving them out? Now, there are spiritual answers to those questions, but it's still interesting to think about. 
Another question would be later on during the time of the judges and the kings, when they have uh, their armies conscripted, the numbers will be a lot smaller. Now, you'd think those numbers would be bigger later on. Perhaps not. They were, remember, conquered and oppressed several times. And later on in this passage, we're going to see that there are fewer firstborn sons than you would expect with this many people. It's going to be about 22,000, which would divide it up if you average it out, that each family would have about 27 children per woman, which seems like a lot. Um, these are not trivial questions, but there really is no solution that satisfies the text, in my opinion. The best uh, answer that I've seen to this is that when it says thousand, the word is elef, Later on in scripture, and this is only like once or twice, it will refer to an elef or a thousand in a, in a general way to mean like a military unit or a regiment or a company, like my thousand. It doesn't have to necessarily be a thousand people, but it's my unit. So it could be that it's not saying that there were 62,700 men. It could be saying that there were 62 units, for example, in the, the tribe of Dan. But that's really pushing it because you can see they're doing math here. So that's the best answer I've seen, other than the easy one, which is to say, we don't really know. It was a long time ago, and I'm willing to let the scripture speak on this one. <laughs> so why were the numbers so big? I don't know. Maybe our archaeology is flawed, and there were a lot more people than we thought. Uh, I'm content to let that mystery lie and not worry about it too much. So I certainly don't want to go into anything where people will say they inflated the numbers to make God look better. It's like God doesn't like that. God does not like it when we lie and we come home and we say 50,000 people got saved on the missions trip and maybe it was 10. It's like, well, I want to make God look really good. That's not what you're doing, right? So that's the first census. Let's keep reading. Verse 47. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. You may have noticed that. We still had 12, but that was by dividing Joseph into two. Why is that? For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. The Levites were excluded from this military census. Their numbers instead were to go for the tabernacle. We've talked about this already, so I'll just remind you. Initially, God had planned to conscript every firstborn son to be his servant in the, the holy place. Exodus 13 verse 2 talks about that on the night of the first Passover, where the Lord struck down the firstborn of Egypt as justice for striking down the firstborn of Israel at the beginning of Exodus, and he then redeemed the firstborn of the people. But the Levites earned that spot when the people went after the golden calf. Only the tribe of Levi did not participate in that. And when Moses went down to try to put a stop to it, it wasn't like in the movie where everybody saw Moses and freaked out. They just kept right on going. They had to get the Levites to actually go out there and put people to death in order to put a stop to this worshipful pagan orgy they were engaged in. So in Exodus 32, 29, after that happened, Moses said to the Levites, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord at the cost of your son and your brother so that he might bestow a blessing upon you to this day. So that's why the Levites are going to be the servants in the tabernacle and later the temple and not the firstborn sons. Everybody in this camp is given, the Hebrew word is tzava. And at tzava was military service. But the Levites were not given a military commission. They were given a tzava, but theirs was to keep guard over the sanctuary. So this is, this is interesting. He's going to say, you are soldiers, but your job is to have a, the word is mishmeret, to keep guard, to keep watch over the sanctuary. This is good to know. They were not just pastors. They were soldiers guarding the tabernacle. 
Their job was to be there, making sure that no one could get to it. That even if the camp was attacked and the army was overrun, the Levites were the last line of defense against the holy place. And there's three different things that the Levites were commissioned to do that we're going to read about. One was to guard the, the tabernacle, the, their mishmaret. One was to be porters, basically to carry it. And this is the, the word for burden in uh, in Hebrew, which is masa, And then they were also to be laborers. They were actually to do the work of the tabernacle like you'd expect. And this is the word adova. These are the three things they were to do. And we're going to read more about that as we go on. Now, let me just give us a real brief piece of application before we move on to more instruction here. You can get real lost in all these numbers as you read them. But you know what's important to know is that God never does. God doesn't see how many millions of Christians are in the world and you get lost in the shuffle somewhere. Jesus said in Matthew 10, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? What's the point of that? They're cheap. You can buy two sparrows for one penny, but not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. I love a little humor from Jesus there. Like, you're worth more than birds, don't you think? Lots of birds. Peter, you're probably worth like nine or ten birds, man. Right? <laughs> He's telling them, God's got you. He sees you. He loves you. Every individual matters to God. Matthew 18, Jesus talked about the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go bring back the one. Individualism is not just some Western idea that's been imported into the church. That Western idea came from the gospel, that every individual matters to God. That's how God treats us as individuals. Your name is written in the book of life, not just 10 million Americans, your name is written there. If you are in Christ, and if you're not, he's after you personally. He wants you. Which not only encourages us that we are loved, it exhorts us to show the same love to each other because that individual you're dealing with is beloved by the Father just like you are. God knows your name, he knows your past, he knows your dreams, and he loves you with an everlasting love as an individual. Let's keep going now. Chapter 2. We're going to do the whole thing here. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. Apparently, each one of them had a flag or a banner. If you're familiar with ancient heraldry, they had those for their, their tribes. We have no idea what they looked like, but it's still cool to think about. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies, the chief of the people of Judah being Nashon, the son of Amminadab, his company being listed as being 74,600. Those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, the chief of the people of Issachar being Nethanel, the son of Zuar. His company is listed being 54,400. Then the tribe of Zebulun, the chief of the people of Zebulun being Eliab, the son of Helon. His company is listed being 57,400. Lots of numbers, right? All those listed of the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set out first on the march. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben by their companies, the chief of the people of Reuben being Elizur, the son of Shedeur, his company as listed being 46,500. Those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon, the chief of the people of Simeon being Shalumiel, the son of Zurishadai, his company as listed being 59,300. Then the tribe of Gad, the chief of the people of Gad being Eliasaph, the son of Ruel. It also can read dual, depending on which version you have. His company is listed being 45,650. All those listed of the camp of Reuben by their companies were 151,450. They shall set out second. Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. As they camp, so shall they set out, each in position, standard by standard. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim by their companies. The chief of the people of Ephraim being Elishama, the son of Amihud. His company as listed being 40,500. And next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh. The chief of the people of Manasseh being Gamaliel, the son of Pedazor. His company as listed being 32,200. Then the tribe of Benjamin. The chief of the people of Benjamin being Abidan, the son of Gideoni. His company is listed being 35,400. All those listed of the camp of Ephraim by their companies were 108,100. They shall set out third on the march. 
On the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan by their companies, the chief of the people of Dan being Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. His company is listed being 62,700. And those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher, the chief of the people of Asher being Pagiel, the son of Okran. His company is listed being 41,500. Then the tribe of Naphtali, the chief of the people of Naphtali being Ahira, the son of Anon. His company is listed being 53,400. All those listed of the camp of Dan were 157,600. They shall set out last, standard by standard. These are the people of Israel as listed by their fathers' houses. All those listed in the camps by their companies were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus did the people of Israel, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards, and so they set out, each one in his clan, according to his father's house. In this chapter, you see the organization of the camp and the caravan in the wilderness. So this is how they were organized when they were camped and how they were organized when they were moving. Each group had its standard. Again, this is a military organization. Each group had its flag, and they were to be oriented around the tabernacle. And I have a graphic for you here. Hopefully you can see that to get a sense of what we're doing here. You had the, the 12 tribes, not counting Levitic, Leviticus, not counting the Levites. They were grouped into threes. And there was, of those four, there were four tribes that were given extra authority above the other two that camped with them. So to the east, this would be before the gate of the tabernacle. This is the place of honor. You have Judah as the primary tribe there. And alongside Judah were Issachar and Zebulun. And when the, the camp packed up and moved, those three tribes went first. These are, if you notice, all three of them are Leah's sons. To the south, you would have Reuben, who had, was in charge of this section. Simeon and Gad were the other two tribes there. They would depart second. These are Leah's other sons. Gad was the son of Zilpah, who was Leah's handmaiden. Leah had six sons of her own body. Those were Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Levi. Now, Levi is not included in this list. So this is why we pull the oldest of the sons of her handmaiden to be with the tribe of Reuben. In the center, you had the tabernacle, and the Levites were to be around them. We'll talk more about them in just a minute. To the west, which would be behind the tabernacle, you had Ephraim, who was in charge of this section. Again, the younger is ruling over the older. Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, who would depart forth. These are Rachel's sons. Rachel only had two. Benjamin and Joseph, but we're dividing Joseph into two tribes because Joseph got a double portion of the blessing from Jacob. To the north, Dan, which was the other largest tribe, is certainly the largest of the sons of the other handmaidens. Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. And they were to depart last. And now all three of those are handmaidens' sons. Gad and Asher were the sons of Zilpah, who were the handmaiden of Leah. And then Dan and Naphtali were the sons of Bilhah, who was the handmaiden of Rachel. So you can see there is, there is logic and there is structure to this organization here. Now, it says they were to organize themselves around the tabernacle. We're not quite sure what kind of distance this involved. In Joshua chapter 3, when the ark goes ahead of the people, which was not normal, normally it was in the middle, but uh, Joshua would tell the people to keep a 2,000 cubit distance from the ark. So perhaps it was something like that, and this would have been a rather large camp. So anytime you read of the camp of the people, this is how it was organized. And anytime you read of them picking up and moving, that's the order in which they would go. So we noted already the importance of individuals in God's eyes. With this chapter, we note that groups count in God's eyes too. In Revelation chapter 5, when we get a vision of heaven after the rapture, all those in heaven sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You do not lose your distinctive identity when you go to heaven. Isn't that cool? We're still going to be Americans in heaven. Because he talks about nations and languages and people, but we're all brought together under one kingdom, which is, of course, God's kingdom. 
Every group matters to God. Every nation matters to God. Every state matters to God. Alabama has a special place in God's heart, as do all the others. Every church, and by that I mean every congregation, has a special place in God's heart. We're not the only ones that God loves. He loves all of them. Every denomination has a place in God's heart. I'm sure many of them he wishes they would come back to him, but still, he cares. Every family, extended family and nuclear family, God cares and has an intention and plan for each one of them. Every race, however you want to divide ethnicity, God cares about that group. Groups matter to God. They're not bad things, but he does teach us about how to interact with one another, doesn't he? The gospel is to fill and fulfill each of those groups to produce, produce disparate, disparate and different sounds that are harmonious to the Lord. Not every culture, not every city, not every church is going to look, sound, or act exactly alike. Within the umbrella of God's righteousness, there's a lot of room for variation. We're not building cathedrals anymore. That's a pretty cool thing that the church did back in the day, right? It's different then, it's different now. You could even add to that, every time was different, and God loves each one. Romans 3.29, Paul reminds us, is God the God of the Jews only? No, he's the God of the Gentiles too. And you know that the word Gentile means nation. He's not just the God of this nation. He's the God of every nation, Paul draws out. This means you do not have to, and should not be made to, feel small because you are part of any kind of group. As long as it is not something that is centered around wickedness and unrighteousness, obviously. If God made you that way, if that's where you are, if that's where you live, if that's where God placed you, don't let anybody bring accusation against you just because of that. But it also means that you should not disparage any other group that is not yours just because it's not yours. Because God does not. God loves Russians just as much as he loves Ukrainians. God loves Americans just as much as he loves Chinese. God is not a distinguisher of persons in that way. We all have our part to play in the Lord's army. So, you know what, you can, let's put it this way. You can be proud without being proud. That makes sense? You can be glad and happy that God made you this way and put me here. I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud to live here. I'm proud to be a part of this church. But I'm not arrogant to the point where anybody who's not is somehow beneath me. And I think we've learned real well the lesson that minority groups should not be despised just because they're part of that group. It's equally true for those who are in the majority group. That must be said. God doesn't go, well, listen, just because there's more of you doesn't mean I love you less. Just like just because there's less of you doesn't mean I love you less. So we don't do that in God's house. He loves every group just like he loves every individual. We're going to do smaller sections going through chapter three now. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron, their father. Did you catch in the first verse here, these are the generations of Aaron and Moses? This is the same Toledoth structural marker that we saw throughout the book of Genesis. That's how Genesis is organized. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Seth. These are the generations of Abraham and Isaac. So this is not somehow connected to that. It's just an interesting little note to remind you of that. It's describing the priesthood as the center of the Levites. Moses was a prophet. He also was a Levite, but he had a very, of course, special role that kind of blended prophet and governor and all those things together. Aaron was the high priest, and he had four sons, but not for long. Uh, two of them, Nadab and Abihu, the oldest, offered unauthorized, you could also translate it more literally, strange fire. They did something in the holy place in Leviticus chapter 10, that they were not supposed to, and God sent fire out of the altar and consumed them. So that leaves us with Eleazar, the new oldest, the high priestly line will go through him after this, and Ithamar. We already read a lot about the priesthood in the book of Leviticus. It was actually largely about the priesthood, the sacrifices they offered, their ordination. So that's why they were not included either in the primary census of the people or in the census of the Levites, which we're about to get to. Let's read verse 5 now. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. So they were to maintain the holiness and the integrity of the holy place. And the Lord spoke to Moses, verse 11, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, that's Passover, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord." So once again, we're mentioning the Levites. He's about to number them and commission them. But I want you to see again, the primary function of the Levites in the wilderness was guard duty. They were to guard the tabernacle and make sure that nobody violated it, and especially that nobody attacked it or tried to steal from it. Later on, of course, when they built the temple, there would still be temple guards. We can assume those were Levites or ought to have been. But they also had functions of administration. There were Levite treasurers. There were a lot of Levite singers. And there were other kinds of ministry. But in this kind of nomadic lifestyle, which they didn't realize how long it was going to be, but the Lord knew, they, this was their primary duty was to be the defenders, the warriors that protected the tabernacle. And again, God references the Exodus story where he redeemed the firstborn, which we already referred to. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, List the sons of Levi <laughs> by father's houses and by clans. Every male from a month up old and upward you shall list. So Moses listed them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded. And these were the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. And these are the names of the sons of Gershon by their clans, Libni and Shimei. And the sons of Kohath by their clans, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the sons of Merari by their clans, Machli and Mushi. There's some baby names for you, if you were wanting some, Mali and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites by their fathers' houses. To Gershon belonged the clan of the Libnites and the clan of the Shimeites. These were the clans of the Gershonites. Their listing, according to the number of all the males from a month old and upward, was 7,500. The clans of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle on the west, with Eliasaph, the son of Lael, as chief of the father's house of the Gershonites. And the guard duty of the sons of Gershon in the tent of meeting involved the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the court, the screen for the door of the court that is around the tabernacle, and the altar and its cords, all the service connected with these." To Kohath belonged the clan of the Amramites, and the clan of the Izharites, and the clan of the Hebronites, and the clan of the Uzielites. These are the clans of the Kohathites. According to the number of all the males from a month old and upward, see we're numbering them from birth now, not from 20 years. There were 8,600 keeping guard over the sanctuary. The clans of the sons of Kohath were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle with Elizaphan, the son of Uziel, as chief of the father's house of the clans of the Kohathites. So it would seem that Uziel was the younger son, but the chief of Uziel is in charge of the Kohathites. Just an interesting note there. And their guard duty involved the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the vessels of the sanctuary with which the priest minister, and the screen, all the service connected with these. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, was to be chief over the chiefs of the Levites and to have oversight of those who kept guard over the sanctuary. They mention Eliezer there because Aaron and Moses were Kohathites. They actually were Amramites. They were descended from Amram, who was from Kohath, who was from Levi. To Merari belonged the clan of the Machlites and the clan of the Mushites. These are the clans of Merari. Their listing according to the number of all the males from a month old and upward was 6,200. And the chief of the father's house of the clans of Merari was Zuriel, the son of Abihail. 
They were to camp on the north side of the tabernacle. And the appointed guard duty of the sons of Merari involved the frames of the tabernacle, the bars, the pillars, the bases, and all their accessories, all the service connected with these, also the pillars around the court with their bases and pegs and cords. Those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tent of meeting, toward the sunrise, were Moses and Aaron and his sons, guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel. Protect them from what? Protect them from accidentally wandering into holy ground and dying. And any outsider who came near was to be put to death. All those listed among the Levites whom Moses and Aaron listed at the commandment of the Lord by clans, all the males from a month old and upward were 22,000. Now the Levites were divided into three clans. Levi had three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And each clan had a specific position in the camp and a certain responsibility in the caravan as they traveled. The Gershonites were to camp to the west. So this is behind the tabernacle. Now, why are they not in the... The, the other one went clockwise in terms of honor. So why are the oldest sons being put behind? Because the Kohathites were related to Aaron and the priests, so they would have been closer. But the Gershonites were to the west. They were to carry the tabernacle coverings. Talk more about that in a minute. The Kohathites were given pride of place to the south. They carried the tabernacle furniture. And the Merarites were to camp to the north and carry the framework of the tabernacle. You'll notice that the Levites were numbered from one month old and up, not 20 and up, because the Levites are being numbered not for military action, but for service in the tabernacle. And this is the redemption of the firstborn is why we're counting them. Little note on the math of the numbers here. You may have noticed this. If you add all three tribes of the Levites together, you arrive at 22,300 not 22,000 even, as it says in verse 39. Now, this is a, an interesting little note on the numbers here. It's really not that complicated. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which the Greek version that we have actually predates the Hebrew version that we have, although, of course, Hebrew came first. They had the sons of Gershon as having 8,300 sons, which would have resolved it instead of 8,600 sons. The Samaritan Pentateuch also has it that way. So that's a, a text critical issue that I think ought to be resolved, in my opinion, because that would make the math add up. But in any way, you probably weren't worried about that. Let's keep going. Verse 40. And the Lord said to Moses, well, listen, the way, reason I say things like that is because you'll find some guy on the internet that'll say the Bible's full of contradictions and try to throw stuff like this in your face. Moses can't even do math. Well, we are aware of these things and there are good answers for them. Verse 40. And the Lord said to Moses, list all the firstborn males of the people of Israel from a month old and upward. So now we're counting all the men from a month old and upward taking the number of their names. And you shall take the Levites for me. I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. So Moses listed all the firstborn among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded him, and all the firstborn males, according to the number of names, from a month old and upward as listed, were 22,273. That's how many firstborn you had in Israel, which you'll note is 273 more than the Levites. We're about to address that. The Lord spoke to Moses in verse 44, saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine, I am the Lord. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel, over and above the number of the male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. You shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 geras, so standard measure, and give the money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are over. So Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the people of Israel, he took the money, 1,365 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons, according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. You can see how in these first chapters, they're doing everything God says. It's not going to last long in the book of Numbers, unfortunately. Well, God has Moses number all of the firstborn in Israel from one month old and up, just like the Levites. And the total comes to 22,273. 
which is 273 more than the Levites. Now remember, the Levites were to replace the firstborn of all the people of Israel, but there were not enough Levites to do that. So God is going to have the remaining men pay a five shekel fee instead of uh, having a Levite stand in their place because there were none at the time. This is their redemption price. It does not say how the men were chosen, so you can come up with your own theory on that. This is the only time we read of this kind of thing happening in Scripture, where they had to pay if there were not enough Levites to fill the spot. Uh, Usually, to redeem your son, you would have to offer a sacrifice, like Mary and Joseph did when Jesus was born. And the whole point of this is that the firstborn belongs to God, whether man or beast. Romans 8.29, Paul says that Jesus was the firstborn among many brothers. There's a lot of cool firstborn imagery you can draw out with Christ, which we've done before, because he stands in the place of us. He's the ultimate servant of God, and he paid that redemption price with his own blood. So maybe that's a study for you to do on your own. What lesson do we learn from this very quickly? Individuals count, right? Groups count. Leaders count to the Lord. The Bible tells us God has ordained leaders in the home, leaders in the nation, leaders in our work, and leaders in the church. This is not something we invented. I know that we, as as an American principle, have an allergy to authority, but it is astonishing to me how easily some people will defy and disparage and just flat out reject leaders in God's church. The number of people that are running around with crazy ideas that have no church and no pastor is not a good thing. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders, speaking specifically of church leaders there, but I think it can apply broadly, and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We are to be servant leaders, right? But we're also to be servant followers, If God has placed someone in authority over you, you need to submit to that authority, whether that is your husband whether that is your boss, whether that is your governor or your president, whether that is your pastor, servant leaders and servant followers. God is a fan of order and hierarchy. And I know we're not, but God really is. In fact, God himself is a harmonious hierarchy. He is three in one and one in three. And they are all in submission to the Father. So if you think that hierarchy means less in value, theologically, we flat out reject that idea. And practically, we live it out in the church. Well, let's get this chapter 4. We've got to go quick here. Verses 1 through 20. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their clans and their fathers' houses from 30 years old up to 50 years old. So this is the number we're doing here. All who can come on duty to do the work in the tent of meeting. So that tells you the span of years in which a Levite would serve. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting the most holy things. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a cover of goat skin. Pause. Goat skin there can also read dolphin or porpoise skin. It's waterproof is what we're talking about here. We'll come back to that, but just keep that in mind as we go. And spread on top of that a cloth all of blue and shall put in its poles. And over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall spread a cloth of blue and put on it the plates, the dishes for incense, the bowls and the flagons for the drink offering. The regular showbread also shall be on it. So they didn't take the bread off even when they were traveling. Then they shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet and cover the same with a covering of goatskin or dolphin skin, and shall put in its poles. And they shall take a cloth of blue and cover the lampstand for the light with its lamps, its tongs, its trays, and all the vessels for oil with which it is supplied. They shall put it with it all its utensils in a covering of goat skin, waterproof, and put it on the carrying frame. And over the golden altar they shall spread a cloth of blue, cover it with a covering of goat skin, and shall put in its poles." They shall take all the vessels of the service that are used in the sanctuary, put them in a cloth of blue, and cover them with a covering of goatskin, and put them on the carrying frame. They shall take away the ashes from the altar, this is the bronze altar now, and spread a purple cloth over it. And they shall put on it all the utensils of the altar which are used for the service there, the firepans, the forks, the shovels, and the basins, all the utensils of the altar, and they shall spread on it a covering of goatskin, and shall put in its poles." 
And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these. But they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, shall have charge of the oil for the light, the fragrant incense, the regular grain offering, and the anointing oil, with the oversight of the whole tabernacle and all that is in it of the sanctuary and its vessels. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites. But deal thus with them, that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. The idea is, if you've got to keep one clan alive, keep these guys alive. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. So here we have the duties of the clans of the Levites. So we've got the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merorites. We know where they're camping. Now this is what their jobs were in addition to their guard duty. These are for men, Levites, between 30 and 50 years of age. The Kohathites were first in rank. They were the clan of Moses and Aaron. And they were to carry the holy furnishings of the tabernacle in a very specific manner. So every time you've seen the picture of people carrying the Ark of the Covenant and it's like shining and there's gold, and there's light coming out of it. No, no, no. It was always covered as they all were. So much for Indiana Jones in that little drawing they have at the beginning of it, huh? But anyway, first, the priests were to go in and cover these things. The priests were also Kohathites, so that's why they had that task. They were to cover up and bring out everything so that no Levite would actually see them. They were to carry them, but never to actually see them. The Ark of the Covenant was covered first. They would take down the veil of the tabernacle and cover the Ark of the Covenant without looking at it, I would assume, right? Then they would cover it with goat skin. Now, as I said, the older translations have dolphin or porpoise, or there's an animal called a dugong that lives in the Red Sea. In the older translations, and they're actually closer to what it actually says. Because some people look at that and say, where are they getting dolphins in the desert? Well, I mean, you know, they're not cavemen here, right? They, they were able to get the skins out of the Red Sea, out of the Mediterranean Sea. Whatever it was, it was supposed to be waterproof so that nothing is going to ruin the Ark of the Covenant. So keep that in mind as we go here. And then they would cover the Ark with a blue cloth. The Ark was the only one where the covered cloth was on top. Everything else, you would have the goat or dugong skin covering it. But the ark was to stand out as the blue one. So, and they would be carried on its poles. Remember the wooden poles that were gilded with gold? So when they carried it, it would have had a blue cloth over it. So that's how you can envision this in your mind. Then the table of showbread, they would take everything off, cover it with a blue cloth, put the bread back, put the utensils back, everything they would use for it, put a scarlet cloth over that, different color, and then put a goat skin over that. And that would be carried by its poles as well. The lampstand would be covered with a blue cloth and then the goat skin. The lampstand did not have rings for the poles. So they had to mount this, you saw, to a carrying frame, as well as all the implements that they needed to use in order to keep the fires burning. The golden incense altar, which was still in the holy place, was covered with a blue cloth and goat skin, carried on its poles, and pretty much anything else they used in the holy place, whether for incense or for the, the ceremonial meals or for the lamps, was all to be wrapped up in the same kind of thing and carried on a carrying frame. No Levite was to actually touch this stuff. Then out into the, the courtyard, the bronze altar would be cleaned, get the ashes out of there first, Cover it with a purple cloth, so everything's blue except for the showbread, which is scarlet, and the bronze altar, which is purple. And then they would put on top of that cloth all of the things, the fire pans and the shovels they needed, cover that with the waterproof skin, and carry that by its poles. The only piece of furniture that is not mentioned is the bronze laver, where they would wash uh, some of the older versions, like the Samaritan Pentateuch, for example, include that. We can assume it would have been carried the same way. Then it says that Eleazar, the oldest son left to Aaron, was in charge of the Kohathites, and he himself was responsible to carry the anointing oil, the incense, and the grain offering, the most holy things. They would not just throw them out. They would carry them, but only the priest could touch them. And so as the people marched, the Kohathites would carry these things out in the open, 
The idea being we're going to carefully transport them and protect them. The ones that were not carrying them would have marched in formation around these things to protect them. Verse 21. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take a census of the sons of Gershon also by their father's houses and by their clans. From 30 years old up to 50 years old, you shall list them, all who can come to do duty, to do service in the tent of meeting. A lot of lists here, huh? You ever thought administrative work was not spiritual? This should correct that. This is the service of the clans of the Gershonites in serving and bearing burdens. They shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting with its covering and the covering of goat skin that is on top of it and the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting and the hangings of the court and the screen for the entrance of the gate of the court that is around the tabernacle and the altar and their cords and all the equipment for their service. They shall do all that needs to be done with regard to them. All the service of the sons of the Gershonites shall be at the command of Aaron and his sons in all that they are to carry and in all that they have to do. And you shall assign to their charge all that they are to carry. This is the service of the clans of the sons of the Gershonites in the tent of meeting. And their guard duty is to be under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So here we have the Gershonites. They were in charge of the coverings of the tabernacle. So this would have been the screen. This would have been the cloth that hang, hung down in front of the sanctuary itself. All of the things that covered the tabernacle itself, which would have been the embroidered covering that had the cherubim on it and would have hung over it so that it would have formed a ceiling for the tabernacle. Also the goat skin or dugong skin tent that was to cover that. There was to be also a leather covering of ram skin on top of that, and then also more waterproof covering on top of it. This thing was not to get wet, if you get the idea. But all of those, all the embroidered linen that surrounded the courtyard, the covering that, that closed off the courtyard from the people, all the cords, all the hooks. We talked about all this in the book of Exodus when they were building it. Now, chapter 7 is going to tell us that the Gershonites were given carts to carry these things. So the Kohathites had to carry all of these things by the poles. The Gershonites had two wagons to carry the, the coverings. And then we see that Ithamar, the other son, was in charge of this aspect of the transport of the tabernacle. Verse 29. As for the sons of Merari, you shall list them by their clans and their fathers' houses. From 30 years old up to 50 years old, you shall list them, everyone who can come on duty to do the service of the tent of meeting. And this is what they are charged to carry as the whole of their service in the tent of meeting. The frames of the tabernacle with its bars, pillars, and bases, and the pillars around the court with their bases, pegs, and cords, with all their equipment and all their accessories, and you shall list by name the objects that they are required to carry. Don't lose anything. This is the service of the clans of the sons of Merari, the whole of their service in the tent of meeting, under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So last we have the Merarites in charge of the framework of the tabernacle. So you remember there were the boards that were actually kind of narrow, but they were tall, that constructed the tabernacle. There were poles that ran through them to hold them in place. There was the bases that they were to put those in. And then the pillars along which they would string all of the linen to form the courtyard. They're carrying all of that framework. Chapter 7, verse 8 tells us that they were given four wagons to help with their burden as well. So only the, the Kohathites are actually carrying these things. Everything else is on carts, which is why later when David puts the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, he is in direct violation of how God told them to transport the Ark of the Covenant. And Ithamar is in charge of this portion of the labor as well. Let's keep going. And Moses and Aaron and the chiefs of the congregation listed the sons of the Kohathites by their clans and their fathers' houses. From 30 years old up to 50 years old, everyone who could come on duty for service in the tent of meeting. And those listed by clans were 2,750. This was the list of the clans of the Kohathites, all who served in the tent of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron listed according to the commandment of the Lord by Moses. Those listed of the sons of Gershon by their clans and their fathers' houses, from 30 years old up to 50 years old, everyone who could come on duty for service in the tent of meeting, those listed by their clans and their fathers' houses were 2,630. This was the list of the clans of the sons of Gershon, all who served in the tent of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron listed according to the commandment of the Lord. Very official, all of this, isn't it? Those listed of the clans of the sons of Merari by their clans and their fathers' houses, from 30 years old up to 50 years old, everyone who could come on duty for service in the tent of meeting, those listed by clans were 3,200, the largest of the clans. 
This was the list of the clans of the sons of Merari, whom Moses and Aaron listed according to the commandment of the Lord by Moses. All those who were listed of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron and the chiefs of Israel listed by their clans and their fathers' houses, from 30 years old up to 50 years old, everyone who could come to do the service of ministry and the service of bearing burdens in the tent of meeting, those listed were 8,580. According to the commandment of the Lord through Moses, they were listed, each one with his task of serving or carrying. Thus they were listed by him as the Lord commanded Moses. So the census is taken. Total of 8,580 eligible Levites. I imagine they would work in shifts. They wouldn't all, of course, be carrying these things. But they would have some kind of order to that. And the remainder of the book of Numbers is going to describe this Bedouin lifestyle that Israel is going to lead. And we need to know how this was done. So this is, again, setting the scene for us. And it's giving a little little color, I think, to how we read our Old Testaments here. And very briefly at the end, I'm going to give us one more application point. We've talked about how every individual counts before God, how every group counts before God, every leader counts before God. Coming from this chapter here, every ministry counts in God's eyes not just priesthood. Even the men carrying the curtains were holy. And that's how ministry works today, too. 1 Corinthians 12 says, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. God does not just value pastors and missionaries, but every job in His service. Where would the church be without people who would clean and plan, and teach, and sweat, and do the things nobody else wants to do. Don't ever aim for a high position thinking that it makes you better than somebody else. And don't look down on yourself because you feel like your ministry is going unnoticed. God sees it. And the only thing you need to worry about, according to Paul, is be found faithful. If God says, sweep this room Until I come back and you do it with all your heart, you'll be rewarded just as much as any missionary that went out and did everything he had been called to do. At the judgment seat of Christ, our priorities are going to be real reset and the rewards are going to be fair. And Jesus said in Mark 10, on that day, when the rewards are handed out at the judgment seat, many who were last shall be first and some who were first are going to be last. So this has been the first four chapters. That's the long section. I'm glad we were able to get through that tonight. This is the first numbering of the book of Numbers. And we've seen the order of the camp and the order of the the travel. It's going to get into some other laws and rules for next time that I think will be interesting to you. Not nearly quite as long a section. What we see here is that God made it a point to organize his people to honor him. And the same is true of each of us. We're we're all part of different structures, but in those structures, every individual counts, every group counts, every leader counts, and every ministry counts. So however you are ending up being counted in God's service, whatever list you would fall in if we're making a list of what we're supposed to do, remember that you do count. And if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that's the only place your name needs to be. God has placed you right where He wants you if you're being obedient. So do it with all your heart Have a little humility, but you can also have joy in doing what God's called you to do.